This is the Journal of American History podcast for June 2014. My name is Stephen Andrews, and I am the managing editor of the Journal of American History. Today, I'm with Barbara Young-Welke, Distinguished McKnight University Professor, Professor of History and Professor of Law, and Co-Director of the Program in Law and History at the University of Minnesota. Among her many publications, she is the author of The Recasting American Liberty, Gender, Race, Law, and the Railroad Revolution, 1865-1920, to and Law and the Borders of Belonging in the Long 19th Century United States, both from Cambridge University Press. She is also the author of the article, The Cowboy Suit Tragedy, Spreading Risk, Owning Hazard in the Modern American Consumer Economy, appearing in the June 2014 issue of the JH. This article takes as its focus the injury and death of an untold number of children across the United States in the years between 1942 and 1954, caused by the inflammability of the fuzzy fabric of the Gene Autry cowboy suits that they were wearing. Thanks for joining us today, Barbara. Sure. Good to be with you. Well, how did you discover this story about the Gene Autry cowboy suits, and, and what drew you to it? Well, I had I had actually never heard of anything about these uh, cowboy suits, uh, except that, you know, I knew about Roy Rogers cowboy suits and Gene Autry cowboy suits, and, you know, these kinds of uh, play suits for children were very common in the you know, mid-20th century. But I'd never heard of any kind of issue related to them. I was working on a larger project on doing a socio-legal history of product liability from the mid-19th century through the 20th century. And one of the first steps I took in that project was to try to collect every appellate case that involved injury from a consumer product. You know, I had a database then of you know, several thousand cases just up to the period 1960. And beyond that, you know, the numbers got even higher. In looking at those cases, you know, most potential cases never even make it to a courtroom. So to have a case actually go through a trial and then appeal, you're talking about, so if you're finding several thousands of those, you know there are you know, that the base of the triangle is much larger at the bottom. Sure, it's, a, it's an iceberg. It's an iceberg, exactly. So one of the things that I was interested in looking at were what, what kinds of products were these, what kinds of cases. The, the article focuses around one of these cowboy suit cases, a case involving the death of a seven-year-old boy, Tommy McCormick. And I would never have noticed that particular appellate case in particular, because it was a you know a one paragraph opinion in which the court, the New York Appellate Court, affirmed the lower court holding, the trial court holding, but lowered the damages. But it said nothing about what the case was about. But in this database of cases that I had, there were a number of other cases, also you know appellate cases, that involved the same defendants, and. You know, they had all been dismissals of cases, uh, cases that had been brought, but they said a little bit more, and that gave me a sense that there was, I could see, in a sense, below the level of the water, if you'd say, in the huh. iceberg, right. you know, example. And so then the question was, how do I start to piece together this picture, and what will I find? So I 
went to the New York State Library, and they had the trial transcript from this one case involved Tommy McCormick. And it was, you know, a 1,200-page transcript. And in that transcript, there were references to a number of other cases. So then, you know, that, you know, again gave me more of a sense. So I spent actually several years then piecing together well over 100 lawsuits that were brought involving accidents involving Gene Autry cowboy suits. So that was what first drew me to it. And and in terms of the appeal uh, of the the case, I mean, one of the things is this involved clothing, not something that we think of as dangerous. And so that was interesting to me because part of what I was interested in this project was how do how did people come to think of a particular kind of product as a source of danger? And how did they come to think of themselves as having rights to particular qualities in a product? And so clothing, you know, made a very compelling kind of example because it's not like a lawnmower or an automobile that is, you know, has danger associated with it in itself. But but also, you know, there was really compelling human drama to this case. You know, you have a child injured and then die uh, from a, a toy, you know, that, you know, it's something that parents had brought to bring, you know, pleasure and happiness to their child and that they hadn't associated with danger. You had the family, the McCormick family. The father was a doorman at a very posh apartment complex in New York City. And one of the manufacturers, the manufacturer of the cowboy suit, was a tenant in that building and had given the doorman the cowboy suit for two of his sons for Christmas. And the fiber that the fabric was woven from was manufactured by DuPont. So you had a lot of elements here that made for a really compelling human story and one that I wanted to follow further. I thought one of the things in the piece that was so, you know, that it was so affecting, and I, I don't know why this detail stayed with me so much, was the the letters that people would actually write to Gene Autry wanting, you know, I, I, that they, they associated this product with him and what he stood for and the as an actor and as a symbol of the, the West. Um, I just thought that was so affecting, again, that your your piece really brings out this kind of human story you know, it's it's a legal history. I mean, it's a history of, you know, consumerism and business history, but it also has such a, a really powerful human element. Oh, it does. It does. And, you know, there are a number, I ended up finding a number of letters from mothers who after, because most of these incidents involved boys between the ages of four and nine, and a number, I found a number of letters that mothers had written to Gene Autry after their son was burned because remember it was a number of years before families had any idea the fabric on the cowboy suit itself was the source of danger so you know these mothers they would have their sons horribly burned and spending weeks months years in a hospital writing to Gene Autry saying things like my son just you know loves you and if you would send him an autographed picture of yourself, it would mean it would give them so much courage and they would it would make them so happy. You know, on Gene Autry's side, you know, initially they do send apparently autographed pictures to boys, 
you know, as the families then find out the cause of this accident, if you can call it that, then a number of those families end up finding their way to court and, and you know, to a lawyer and to court. And so one of the things that Autry's agent ends up kind of saying to him is, we shouldn't be responding to these families um, because remember what happened in these other, you know, instances. But I think those letters don't, don't begin at all with the parents having any, you know, Gene Autry should be held responsible here or that they had any kind of legal claim at all. Right. It seems to, you know, that these, this, these events you're talking about, um, you know, if you look at a kind of a broad history of consumerism, these histories of consumerism also seem to, you know, they either gain speed or some of these stories start in the 1940s and 50s. You know, what is this lawsuit and, and these, uh, the issues over the cowboy suits? I mean, what does it, what does it say about American consumerism, particularly at that, that moment in mid-century? Well, it's a really critical point in the development of a mass consumption economy in the United States. You have a a broad consumer society even before the war, but the Depression poses real questions about capitalism. And one of the things that happens with the war is, of course, war mobilization brings the United States out of the Depression. And then the question is, you know, will the United States go back into a depression with the end of war mobilization? And one of the things that both business leaders and governing elites see during the war years is they come to see a mass consumption society as the solution to that problem, that that will be the driver of the American economy for the post-war era. And so it's, it's really only in you know, beginning in the war years, but then, you know, you have an economy that's largely focused on producing war material. But then, you know, in the closing years of the war itself and then the post-war era where you have working-class families, so beyond middle-class families, but working-class families are now brought into this mass consumption economy. And that, you know, is really the driver for the economy from the mid-40s through the 1970s, and, you know, even still, although in different terms today. Um, You know, one of the things that that also surprised me about this piece, and and I I know I probably shouldn't have thought this way, um, but it seems to me that in just the, when I think about American history, that these kinds of product lawsuits seem like such a modern development. Like, you know, if you would have asked me when there were product lawsuits, I I would have certainly knew they existed by this point. But I was kind of surprised that it seems to be part of a long history. Uh, they weren't new in the 1940s, right? I mean, how did it? How did these differ from the kind of product lawsuits um, against manufacturers we had in the past? Well, you're you're right. It's a much longer history, but it's not a history that's been written. So that was, you know, part of what this larger, longer-term project that I am still working on is part of. But there were all kinds of legal impediments to people being able to bring lawsuits in the 19th century against manufacturers. So the, the law said that you could only bring a lawsuit against someone that you had a direct contract relationship with. Ah. So if I bought a horse from you, for example, I could potentially bring a lawsuit against you if that horse, it turned out, was lame or something like that. 
But then there was another problem, and that was a legal doctrine called caveat emptor, which basically meant buyer beware. So there was the legal doctrine that said buyers had to, you know, they had to be responsible buyers. They had to have inspected a product. They had to have, you know, taken care of themselves. And there was an assumption that you had knowledgeable buyers and knowledgeable sellers on kind of an equal terrain. So you had these two legal doctrines, the doctrine of privity that said you could only bring suit against someone you had a direct contract relationship with, and then this doctrine of caveat emptor. One of the things that starts to happen by the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, is the erosion of these kinds of doctrines. So in the case of ultra-hazardous products, an individual could bring a lawsuit. And, and then a very famous case in the 19-teens called McPherson versus Buick Motor Company, where a man was injured when the wooden wheel on his car collapsed. And he had bought it from a dealer, right? But he was allowed in that case to bring a lawsuit against Buick Motor Company itself. And, and the idea was that when a company produces something for the market, it is responsible to the ultimate consumer if that article proves to be defective or was negligently manufactured. And the idea was that if a product is if a negligently manufactured product is likely to be a source of injury, then the individual would be able to bring suit. So that's a really key development in legal doctrine in terms of allowing consumers to bring lawsuits directly against the manufacturer, even though they wouldn't have a direct contract relationship with that manufacturer. So, for example, these cowboy suits, most of them were purchased at department stores, sure. right? So, or, you know, at other kinds of, of stores, you know, no one except for the McCormick family, and the McCormick family, you know, had received the cowboy suit as a gift from the manufacturer, but otherwise, you know, they aren't buying the ma- this cowboy suit from the manufacturer itself. So those those changes actually lead individuals to be able to bring lawsuits directly against manufacturers. But still, the individual has to prove negligence. And it's not until, you know, I think we associate this explosion of lawsuits with the 1960s, 70s, and beyond for two reasons. One, the development of strict liability, which is a development at that stage, but also I think because of a very powerful manufacturing lobby that is all about making these lawsuits seem like a problem and a drag on the economy. Sure. And, you know, that's part of the tort So I think I think those are part of the reasons that we associate it with a later period. But one of the things I was even surprised by in collecting these appellate decisions in the pre-1960 era was just how many of them there were. Right. Well, I mean, there are fascinating questions here about corporate veil, right? I mean, about, oh, yeah. you know, could you go after, you can go after the manufacturer of the suit, but could you go after DuPont and, and how that's going to get sorted out? This seems to be a really interesting moment in where those boundaries are going to be and, and how far they're going to move. That's fascinating. So the McCormick family only brought a lawsuit against the manufacturer of the cowboy suit, the mill where the fabric had been woven or the fiber had been woven into a fabric, and then the partnership that acted as an agent, you know, con- connecting this, this mill with, 
you know, the manufacturer of the cowboy suit itself. So they didn't bring suit against Gene Autry. They didn't bring suit against DuPont. They, there was no retailer involved in the case. But in a number of the other cases, DuPont was named as a defendant, and Gene Autry was named as a defendant. And there was also, of course, often a retailer named as a defendant in the suit. But DuPont didn't end up paying a dime in any of these cases. Huh. Well, I mean, one of the things that, you know, that, that we just touched on was this question of risk, of caveat emptor of, you know, what are the responsibilities of consumers and what are the responsibilities of producers and manufacturers and retailers? You know, risk seems to be very important, you know, risk and insurance. How do you use those terms? Did you feel like you had to define them, you know, in a particular way for this this particular story you're telling? And, and how do you see that evolution? Well, risk is important. It's central, but it's, yeah, and it was really important to define because I think when we often you know, in our general conversations, we use the term risk. We're using it to say, to mean danger, right? Um, that something is, you know, you're, you're taking, you know, risk-taking behavior uh, or a risk factor. We, we're talking about danger or peril. And the origins of the term risk are somewhat different from that. Risk begins as a financial instrument, commodity that helped make the maritime trade possible. So the foundation of capitalism is really built on this commodity, this financial commodity, where someone could could spread the potential risk of this sea voyage among many people. And and so a risk, you know, in as a form of insurance became a good in and of itself. Bought, sold, divided that sort of thing. But it, it was linked to an underlying commodity. So a ship, the goods on a ship. And then eventually, you know, in the 19th century, and John Levy has a fantastic uh, new book about this called Freaks of Fortune, talks about, you might say, risk coming ashore. So the development of life insurance in the United States and the development of other kinds of financial instruments. But it's only in the early 20th century out of lawsuits brought by consumers for defective and negligently manufactured consumer goods that you have product liability insurance first developed. Yeah. So that's the origin. So that's how I'm using risk here. And you know, one of the things that starts to happen in the law is that courts facing these lawsuits, well, they start to believe that in a mass consumption society, there will be products that harm, that cause injury, and that cause death. And that's, that's, it's just going to be. And what should happen as a result of that just being the reality of a mass consumption society, as they see it, or a mass production, mass consumption society, is that manufacturers are in the best position to ensure against that kind of harm by, you know, buying insurance and spreading the cost, spreading, if you will, the risk across consumers who purchase those products, right? So that we are all, in a sense, paying a little bit for that insurance, you might say, in every product we buy. Sure. The focus of the article, which separates this spreading of risk from what I call owning hazard, 
because hazard is the harm itself. So for each of these children and their families and their communities that suffered this harm, the fact that they may have, and many did ultimately receive some type of monetary compensation for the harm, the fact that they receive that monetary compensation does not, you know, does not undo the harm sure. that is burned onto their bodies in their lives. So, so that's what I mean by spreading risk versus owning hazard. And this was a kind of hazard that none of these families in purchasing a child's play suit for their child ever expected to own. Is there an inherent weakness of this conception um, that, you know, that, that we can make a product that they will necessarily cause harm, and so money is what we do to just make up for that occurring? And that seems, you know, when you say it, it seems kind of that's a, that's a moral failing. Is that just one of the, I don't know, operating flaws of capitalism? You just have to accept that that's part of a consumer society, that, that you know, the money will not make up for the pain and the permanent disfiguration or death, um, but that's, that's what we do because that's what we have. Uh, there's no other system that, that works. You know, as I'm arguing in the article, you know, I think one of the things that's important is for us to face that, you know, really acknowledge that because if you yourself haven't been a victim or, or know someone who has, it remains very distant. And this sense that individuals are compensated, and we're, we're often led to believe that they are compensated in the millions of dollars. And so it's, I think it's easy to forget that that initial harm cannot be undone. And so one of the reasons here that I chose to, you know, in a sense, trace this very large question through a very particular set of cases was to remind us of the individual lives that are at the heart of this kind of story. And this is not to say the money doesn't make a difference. Oh, sure, sure. You know, these family had, families had incredible medical expenses. This is a period before most families had insurance. To be, have some form of compensation was really critical to these families' lives. And we also, of course, have regulation. So, you know, regulation does ultimately come out of this set of episodes, uh, flammable fabric, fabrics regulation. Maybe, maybe what's a flaw is that we come to be so comfortable with this just being the way it is. Well, and I think you're right. I mean, I think there's something in that, that the suffering of others is easily abstractable in a way that our own suffering isn't, and that allows the entire system to kind of move forward. Uh, you know, in, in what you're writing, how important is it that this is a children's product and children are being injured? Because, I mean, I think you're right. There is a distinction we would draw, though, between something made for adults or something that is inherently dangerous. I mean, that does seem to be a key part of this story. It is important that these are children because, first of all, we expect a different level of responsibility from children. So, for example, in this same time period, there were a number of lawsuits involving fuzzy fuzzy robes made for women that caught fire as the women were cooking or smoking. 
And, you know, in those lawsuits, at least in this particular moment, a number of the courts did not hold the manufacturer liable because the manufacturer said it was the woman's own responsibility. You know, she shouldn't have been smoking while wearing this robe. She shouldn't have been cooking. Now, I don't I don't know what, what their homes look like, but I think many women do cook in their robes. Sure, sure. Uh, but in this moment, so, we, you know, that may have made a difference here for this one court that decides this one case. Because importantly here, the first case brought to trial is the only case that is actually tried. And after that, as cases are brought, they settle them. So we can we can talk about that in a moment. But it does matter that these are children, you know, in that sense that we don't hold children to the same level of responsibility. So the fact that many of these children were using matches in their play, oh, uh, nice. you know, so that you have a child who's playing with a chemistry set and another child watching on, and that, you know, a little fire starts and the child wearing the cowboy suit goes to try and stamp the little bit of a fire out and, you know, his chaps then explode into flames. And and mostly these are boys playing with matches in some way or another. But then you also have that fire was such a central part of people's lives at mid-century. People burn their trash. People burn their leaves. You have parents also setting up situations that, under these circumstances, were dangerous to these children. But another reason that it matters that these were children and, you know, a, a play suit for children is that I think we often excuse kinds of injuries because we say the article is otherwise so important to, you know, to our economy or to daily life that the fact that it injures or kills a certain number of people is something that we accept. So I think automobiles yeah. yep, are, you know, probably, you know, the, the key example of that. But that's certainly not something that you could say for a child's play suit. So, so I think in that sense, it's important that it was children as well. And then a third element that I think is in particularly important about these being children is that you had a whole movement early in the 20th century, when you think about child labor laws to you know, get children out of the industrial workplace, when you think about mandatory education laws and laws to create protected spaces to make childhood itself a protected space. So the fact to have these being children at mid-century being horribly maimed and a number of them killed you know, in a sense, flew in the face of this whole movement that had been about creating a right to childhood, if you will. Right. Sure. So uh, getting back to what we had said earlier about the, the – so there's an interesting, you know, historical kind of mystery that you're solving. And a lot of that seems to be connected to that – the fact that these things were settled. Um, how does that impact the story? Well, hugely because – Lawsuits that go all the way to a verdict have a chance of being in the news. So one of the one of the things that was such a mystery to me when I first started this, I mean, we think of danger to children as something that would be front page news. Absolutely. Right? Just immediately. And yet, you know, I was seeing this incident to this child in nineteen forty five. And as I was 
piecing the story back together, I was realizing that the first one of these accidents involving a child had happened in 1942, so three years before. And in between, there had been who knows how many children burned. And even when you had a news story in a particular town or city about a child being burned, there was no sense of what caused it. So it was just this, in, you know, this family's you know, private tragedy. So you didn't have anyone bring suit until 1945. And then you have this one suit that starts in 1945. And then, you know, in the same general time context, a number of other families bring suit. But it's only in 1948 when the McCormick case is decided. And you have then an AP story that is published in newspapers across the United States that many families whose children had been burned between 1942 and 1948 even learned what was the cause of this accident to their child. So that's one AP story, right? And even though it was in many dozens of newspapers across the country, in far more cities where these cowboy suits were sold, it did not appear. Right, sure. And one of the lessons that the businesses involved in manufacturing the Gene Autry cowboy suits learned from that was that they weren't going to let another case, you know, go to trial. So they did everything they could. You know, they settled cases. They asked courts to seal court records, and courts sealed court records in this time period in product suits without any question whatsoever. Families, of course, would agree to those sealing of the records because their immediate concern would be, you know, their own child. There was no sense of how many other incidents there were, but that created a wall of silence. And, you know, the fact that these suits were settled, that there was no, of course, there was no kind of a legal obligation to recall the suits, to notify any of the stores or outlets that were selling the suits, you know, anything like that meant that more children were burned and more children died. The settlements themselves are critically important to how many children ultimately were injured. And they were also important because it meant, you know, if there had been dozens, hundreds of these cases actually going to trial, think about the outcry. Sure, sure. You know, the public outcry. So one of the other things that's really important, it seems to me, in the settlements is not just that many families never learned, you know, what was the cause of this, what seemed to them a private family tragedy, but also that a broader public didn't know about these incidents and the kind of outcry and the response that would, would come out of that. Wow. So the, this perception that, that every case brought is going to have a multiplying effect. So it makes financial interest just to settle them, just to keep them quiet, um, just because the, if the word gets out, that could stimulate so many more lawsuits that there's a, there's a, it makes sense that you would want to, if you were the, the corporate manufacturer or the producer, that you'd want to settle these as quickly and as quietly as possible. Right. And what's stunning is that courts saw no public right to this information. And even though the defendants, I mean, the way the defendants put it was that it would lead to sham lawsuits. You know, that's, that's their claim to the courts. And the courts, very overburdened, no sense of, because they're facing 
lots of consumer, you know, consumer product liability suits in this period. No sense that there's a public interest at stake here. You know, just sealed the record. Has that been solved? I mean, this 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 is so different than the context we're in today. I mean, so, I mean, could something like that happen now? But it's not different than the context we're in today. So it is different in the sense that now in many states, so one of the things that the trial lawyers lobby did in the 1960s and 70s um, was in many states to get laws passed that required courts to consider whether there was a public interest at stake before sealing a court record. But remember, most cases never even get to trial. So when we think, you know, if you want to think right now about uh, the case of General Motors and the ignition switches, those cases were blocked by a whole variety of means. But one of the ways that GM dealt, has dealt with things was to settle cases. And a case that is settled, there's no legal record of the settlement at all because one of the terms of the settlement is that there will not be a formal legal record that can be traced and, and that the plaintiff you know, is barred from saying anything to anyone about the terms of the settlement. And that's another reason that it's so important that these cases involve children because in cases involving children, parents aren't allowed to just settle a case without, so the court acts as, in a sense, the legal representative of the child to make sure the child's interests are being upheld in the settlement. So that in these cases, one of the things that I've been able to collect are all of the actual legal settlements because they had to be filed with the court. Even though a number of them were sealed and I had to get a court order to get them opened, the, the settlement documents themselves, you know, in terms of who, you know, which manufacturers paid what and how much is part of a public legal record in a way that the vast majority of settlements today are not. So, I mean, only in a sense, your piece is about the bad old days and how things have evolved and, and what role this case played in an evolution of the role of government or risk or hazard. But in another sense, your this story is a story that is tells us something about what still occurs today and and the kind of fallout from the the way that risk insurance and hazard is managed in the American economy today as much as it was in the 1940s and 50s. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And and one of the things that is important to me in the article is that we don't think of this as just an episode from the past and that we also don't think of this as just a matter of bad actors. This is the way our economy, in terms of our consumer economy and the way law deals with product injury, is structured. And that's as true today as it was then. Now, there there are lots of changes. You know, people can bring class action lawsuits now, uh, regulation in many areas of economy that we didn't in the 1940s. So, for example, tremendous regulation related to products for children or automobiles or, you know, that sort of thing. But even so, you know, I think the example, again, of GM or the example a few years, you know, only a few years ago of the lead in toys for children, you know, are really great examples that show that 
even in parts of the economy where you have quite a lot of regulation, there are huge gaps. Those regulations don't prevent this kind of thing from happening. And the basic structure of insurance and spreading risk and owning hazard remains the world we live in today. Yeah, the idea that it's, it's we want to oftentimes think of these as bad actors who are cheating the system and instead recognize that this is something systemic in the way that we have organized our economy and the way right. we organize and think about how the economy works. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because, you know, Milton Henry, the president of the M.A. Henry Company that manufactured these cowboy suits, would never have given these cowboy suits as a gift to his doorman for his children if he had thought that he was giving him a gift that would leave one of his sons burned over much of his body two weeks later. And yet, you know, in the sense that Ralph Nader used the term, the hazard had been designed into these cowboy suits by the choice of the fiber and the way that fiber was woven, a certain number of children were going to suffer injury and death if anyone had thought about it. And is there there any sense, do we have any sense that the people who were running the companies, who were producing the fabrics, that they knew at some earlier date and made a conscious choice to, to do nothing, to leave them in production? Or do we not, is that story part of the story that's just invisible at this stage? Well, it's not invisible, and and they clearly did know. So, you know, it's clear that as early as 1941, before these cowboy suits were being produced, that DuPont was aware that these rayon fibers woven into a high-pile fabric, they, they were receiving inquiries and expressions of concern about inflammability. And we should probably come back to that word, but about the really dangerous quality of that fiber. But their attitude was, we'll deal with that once our fabrics gain a real foothold in the market. We'll worry about that later. And you also have both the mill that wove the fiber into a fabric and the the partnership that acted as an agent for that mill knew that this fabric that they were producing was highly inflammable. And they did a number of tests where they tried to, you know, render it not inflammable. And they, each of the tests, as they put it, spoiled the fabric. So they went ahead and sold it to the market anyway. Now, Milton Henry insisted that he did not know. He's the owner of the company that produced the cowboy suits. The other, you know, companies insist that they told him, and certainly he was in a position to know. Gene Autry, of course, did not know. And it's important, you know, an important part of the story is uh, that the way World War II intervened, so that the Henry Company began making cowboy suits with real fur on the chaps from China. When the war breaks out, they can no longer get that fur from China, And so they start looking for a fiber, you know, domestically that they can use. And they could have used fur, but fur would be more expensive. And they ended up finding their way to this, you know, fabric, peach fox fluffy, you know, woven by this mill. Um, But when Gene Autry first signed the 
licensing agreement to you know license his name Walt he knew was what the cowboy suit would look like right, right. you know sure. he had no idea of course what any of the fibers or fabrics were and didn't find out until 1945 in terms of the parties knowing they certainly knew that this fiber woven into this fabric was inflammable now whether any of them made the next step to think that that might mean that individuals owning articles made out of this fiber might be injured. We don't know that. We do know, though, of course, that they all had product liability insurance. So they had insured against some kind of harm coming from the products they manufactured. So we do know that. And so there was a sense that even if they had thought forward, there's also a sense that they were shielded, they were protected, that business moves forward, and if it turns out that that's a problem, we've already planned for that eventuality, we'll be okay. And then uh, the Gene Autry found out in 1945? He found out in 1945. He was in the armed services at the point he found out, and he did then express, you know, interest wanting to know if they had stopped making them, you know, with that fiber. And at some point, the Henry Company does stop making the cowboy suit with that fiber. But it's important to remember that there are a whole lot of these cowboy suits out circulating in the economy. that have been sold across the United States in both small little single-store sort of operations and in large multi-store department stores. So all kinds of enterprises. And and they're out there in those stores, and they're still out there also in consumers' hands. And there's no process or effort to do anything about the cowboy suits that are already out there. There's no recall. There's no warning. There's no... No. And I mean, in part because would they be opening themselves up to legal liability if they were to make such an announcement? Absolutely. And, you know, also, I mean, it's at a point where manufacturers had no idea who purchased. I mean, you think about any of us today are regularly receiving, I mean, think about the number of recall notices you might receive in a year related to a defect in your automobile, your washing machine. There was no process that connected an individual consumer to an individual product. But beyond that, there was actually in this particular scenario a way that those involved could have reached out to consumers, and that was through Gene Autry himself. I mean, Gene Autry was a national radio star. He had a weekly radio show. There was actually a vehicle, if you will, to have reached out to consumers, but there was absolutely... You know, and I, and I don't I don't know whether that topic was ever broached. Um, many of the records for Gene Autry for that period were were burned in a fire, in an accidental fire. So I don't I don't know what conversations might have happened there, but certainly what I do know is that nothing did happen. You know, there was no effort, and and in fact, when you look at the actions of all of the defendants or the potential defendants, all of their actions are about minimizing knowledge and, you know, protecting themselves. Well, this is an amazing story. Um, I'd like to thank you so much for talking to us today and for sharing it with, uh, with the readers of the JAH. 
Well, thank you, Stu. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in September for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org. Thank you.